I absolutely love it. Yes. Yes. It's very, it feeds me. It, it's very gratifying. It gives me reason to come to work every day. It's, I think it's more, I think of it more as a, a calling than it is a, just a job. Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. Joining me today here in the podcast studio is Dr. Jeannie Harden. Dr. Harden, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Now, you're an associate professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at UT Health San Antonio, and you also work at the only level one trauma center for pediatrics, University Hospital, here in South Texas. You're board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and pediatric rehabilitation medicine and brain injury medicine. Yes. When you were eight years old, you were on a road trip coming from California to Texas with your family and you were in a terrible car accident and your father died in that accident, and that inspired you to do what you're doing today. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it was a pivotal moment in my life, to say the least. We survived that ordeal, and um, so much of it that came out of it, my mother had been a beautiful model of strength and resiliency and faith, and she... Um, continued to raise my brothers and me and as a single mother immigrant to this country and so um, had a lot to live up to but also just having survived that trauma of a car accident and remembering all the kindness and the care of the people who took care of my family and me I just felt very called to medicine from that point. What does that feel like today when you are helping children who have been in horrible car accidents? So unfortunately, Holly, I do see a lot of these kids who um, have been in trauma, as you mentioned, with University Hospital having the only one pediatric level one trauma center. I do take care of a lot of kids who have been in these car accidents, and it's... um, almost brings me inner healing to be able to ride this journey of survivorship with these trauma patients. And so I'm very grateful that I'm able to be able to work with kids that um, are able to survive such a horrendous ordeal. How is your family doing now? They're doing really great. Uh, My brothers are very successful and happy and they have beautiful children. And um, unfortunately, my mother did pass away of ovarian cancer just a few years ago. Oh, but I'm sorry. My husband, first and foremost, is a rock. He is um, my rock. He is a, a true pillar of strength for me, and uh, he makes me want to be a better person every day. And um, and he. It's like that phrase, as iron sharpens iron. You know, we, we, um, we really are life partners in this journey. And so also raising our two amazing daughters, they're, um, they help to give me that balance that I need in my work and um, just in my life in general to, to remind me of why... Um, 
why all of this is worth it. It's really about the the connection between people and um you know, I want to teach my daughters what it's like to be compassionate and to be kind and um, and to help others and not necessarily wanting them to go on a path of to medicine like I did, but I want them to choose their own paths. But but um, but really, they uh, my husband and my daughters really helped me to to really strike a good balance in my life. So. All my life, I've been living between two cultures, the Korean culture and the American culture. And that really does help me in terms of understanding where some of our families come from, especially being in South Texas and encountering a lot of immigrant families as well. So um, I know that a lot of people in, in San Antonio and the people we take care of at University Hospital, they also come from multiracial households and so it's it's um there's also that level of cultural um, sensitivity that i am able to pr- bring to the care you're a physiatrist yes nice not to be mistaken for psychiatrist <laughs> and so it's a very specific specialty and there's not a lot of doctors who are board certified in your field in fact you're the only board certified pediatric rehabilitation medicine doctor in South Texas? I believe that's true, unless somebody has snuck in to the South Texas region. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, the general field of physical medicine rehabilitation is about function and removing barriers, any barriers that exist to achieving one's highest level of potential for function. And when it comes to the pediatric world, it's a very particular niche in that um, the patients are very young and they're still in an active phase of development and growth. And so an injury or um, a condition or illness that affects them from a young age continues to make an impact all throughout their lifespan. And I think there is such a great need for patients who transition from pediatric to adult care. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing and um, I try to provide for our community is that, that transition of care to adult care. And so I do have a lot of adult patients with cerebral palsy and spina bifida. And, and just understanding how that sort of childhood onset disability affects an adult living with that same disability. And you are going to be practicing at the new Women and Children's Hospital? Yes. This is so very exciting. We have an inpatient rehab unit for pediatric patients at university right now. And we will be moving from the um, current existing University Hospital to the new to the new hospital, and there we'll have capacity to take on more patients. We have received um, very generous donations from uh, from Avis Wish Foundation, um, and you know uh, Tracy Lopez, who is the founder and president of Avis Wish Foundation, has had such a huge dream for University Hospital to have its own pediatric rehab unit. And 
with her dream and the um, the generosity of the foundation, we're able to to make it happen in the new hospital. When do we know when that will open? Do we have a date? No, we are just standing by for <laughs> not quite. So tell me, tell us a little bit about Ava's wish. I know it was years ago here in San Antonio, a mom and her children, they were in their front yard, I think doing some gardening and a drunk driver hit them, plowed into their front yard, as you said. That's right. And so Tracy was working in the front yard with her two daughters. Ava was 18 months old at the time. And, um, and in a, actually we did a television interview together and she recounted how Ava, um, she was airbound. I mean, she, she was hit so hard that she had so many injuries and the worst of it was the brain injury. Mm. Um, and she was stabilized and treated here at University Hospital. And so Tracy became very familiar with the ICU. And then when it came time to transition her care, they uh, transferred to the Children's Hospital San Antonio, where they received wonderful care as well. And I think from that moment, Tracy really had a passion and vision for um, taking care of the families who are also needing to be in the ICU. So I know that Ava's Wish has had some projects with taking care of um, our PICU families. And then, um, but also they, I remember prior to COVID, we, um, they would have these 5Ks to raise money, but I know they're, um, they're very busy and still continuing the mission of Ava's Wish. And we're able to see it bear its fruit. Here. And we'll have a state-of-the-art pediatric rehab facility right here in this city. That's right. And it's really for our South Texas region because we are the only one um, inpatient pediatric rehab unit um, for servicing the Level 1 Trauma Center. And for our pediatric practitioner listeners here in the area, we will put in the phone number for to refer a patient to you. And there are such few doctors in your specialty. Um, For our listeners here and nationally, internationally, um, what advice would you have regarding, you know, when do you refer your patient to a pediatric rehabilitation doctor? I think it really comes down to how much time a pediatrician may have in their office to be able to focus on these issues Um, and for me, I spend a lot of time in educating families about diagnoses and prognoses and, um, and everything in between. And so, uh, if I have that luxury of time to, uh, to be educating the families like that, I think then pediatricians could also consider this as well, if they have a patient who is struggling in their function in some way, um, especially if it re- involves a, a neurologic disorder or um, a neurologic injury, and um, and really trying to restore their functionality, that would be a really great time to think about referring to pediatric rehab medicine. 
So can you give us um, an example? Yeah, so one example um, is uh, actually long COVID. We have um, survived this global pandemic and um, now we're dealing with the aftermath of it all. And we're learning so much about this new syndrome, the post-acute sequelae of COVID, or also known as long COVID. And I think this COVID has changed the landscape of medicine so much that if a patient has had COVID before, it can really throw off one's clinical decision-making. And so it can um, confound the picture quite a bit. And so I get the sense that, um, I mean, if I encountered a patient with COVID, my, my usual thought process of, well, especially setting up the differential diagnoses is, is not what, it, what I was trained to do um, or trained to think of in medical school and in residency because we just hadn't encountered that before. So what does that look like? What would you... So some of my true long COVID patients that I've seen in clinic um, are, um, have been kids who are pretty high functioning, no prior medical history, um, no underlying diagnoses, and potentially even a high achieving um, student in school. And they start having... Um, significant difficulty in keeping up their activities, um, the, the activities that they were doing previously, and they were star athletes and potentially, and they're no longer able to perform at that level, or they're no longer able to even attend school because they're so fatigued. And while there could be other issues going on, I mean, like I said, when, when we're, um, when I was in training, we, we would think about, okay, if a teenager started having academic difficulties, one of the first things we would need to think about is depression. Is there an underlying mood disorder? But now that someone has had COVID and there's that possibility of uh, post-viral debility, then it's like, okay, well, maybe it's COVID. Go see the COVID specialist. But for some of... Um, for some of us who do see long COVID patients in clinic, the wait list is very long to get in. Um, so, so what can the primary um, care provider do in the meantime? And I would think, well, there are certain consensus guidelines out there. Uh, the Academy, the American Academy of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation, has consensus guidelines on treatment of various uh, sequelae from COVID nineteen. And one of them, one of the consensus guidelines is specific for the pediatric population. So on AAPMNR, they do have a free access journal article in their um, flagship um, publication, the PMNR journal, where there is a, um, is a guideline on how to manage some of the symptoms in pediatric patients, including um, maybe if the patient has dysautonomia, if the patient has breathing difficulty or um, decreased activity tolerance, these are some of the things that they could, um, they could focus on or maybe some specialists they could refer to. Um, I definitely 
lean heavily on that consensus guideline to help direct my care if I do encounter a patient um, who hasn't been through some of the workup that's recommended in that guideline. And you, we don't really think about long COVID so much in pediatrics. You hear about it more in the adult world. but it, mm-hmm. So it is something, though, to really keep top of mind. And it seems like it would be so difficult to really nail down, is that what's causing this or not? You know, we're Right. And it's so challenging because it's, um, and I think that <laughs> speaks to some of the challenges we encounter in pediatrics in general, is that their kids and how uh, reliable are their histories and how well are they actually articulating what they are going through. But first and foremost, at least for me in my practice, it doesn't matter. As long as the kids are able to talk, I'll still listen and take what they tell me with a grain of salt. But um, but it's, it is important to just listen. And I think sometimes just providing that listening ear also helps quite a bit just to even validate their symptoms and validate that they may be encountering issues after a COVID-19 infection. And that validation goes a really long way in making the, um, in taking the right direction towards recovery. Jeannie, is there one telltale sign that it should be on the pediatric practitioner's radar that, oh, this could be caused by long COVID? Hmm. Pretty hard to say, I think. Um, I think that there are new, um, new changes in respiratory function or cardiovascular function that could certainly raise flags um, for this being long COVID. There are also GI issues associated with COVID-19 um, or long COVID. And... Um, and also certainly mood issues as well because it for some of these kids it was very psychologically traumatizing especially if they even lost a friend to a COVID-19 infection so there are so many layers that need to be um, that need to be peeled away to be able to get to the root of the problem and treat it. Jeannie you say the overarching focus of your specialty is function and your goal is to identify and treat whatever that functional impediment is. So really helping each child to reach his or her full potential. Yes. <laughs> that was beautiful. And I also see these kids um, after they leave the hospital for all their long-term effects from their injuries. So because their brain or spinal cord is injured, they end up having an upper motor neuron syndrome which is characterized by spasticity, dystonia, different movement disorders um, that need treatment with medications, injections, all of which I do in my clinic. And also having um, support for school, neuropsychological assessments, and even um, long-term hormonal monitoring because a brain injury can result in disruption of that pituitary axis where a lot of the hormones are produced. Um, and so we, and so I 
help to keep an eye on um, on these issues as well. And especially for our kiddos who are really young um, and and they have sustained an, a brain injury before the age of two, they this child would then qualify in the technical diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And so a lot of my outpatient kiddos have cerebral palsy. And, well, this correlates with cerebral palsy being the most um, prevalent childhood, dis- childhood disability. I do a lot of management of their, um, any spasticity that may come up, pain management, and, um, and really any barriers that the therapists may encounter while they're working intensively with the patients. So you also help kids after a prolonged hospital course with critical illness, secondary to anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis and sepsis? Yeah, so a lot of these kids have prolonged bed immobilization. Uh, They may have required ECMO for weeks. They were intubated for weeks and, um, and may have even gotten a tracheostomy during that time just to help support their reading. And so when we are doing our inpatient rehab, we work towards um, sometimes getting the kids to be able to get decannulated during their rehab stay. Uh, Sometimes that mobility really does help restore their respiratory function to where they're strong enough to be um, breathing on their own. And um, so a lot of times the, the kiddos do benefit from having that intensive 15 hours a week of therapy that we can provide in an inpatient rehab unit. But sometimes I do see kids in clinic and they've been referred by their, uh, their PCP for just protracted period of recovery. Um, so maybe they have been bed bound since their initial injury and hospitalization and um, just can't seem to get back to their prior level of functioning. And what, and if there was some kind of, if it were some kind of neurologic injury like, um, like a stroke or a severe traumatic brain injury, then, then there may be things like spasticity and tone management that I could help with that helps to get the kids mobile again. And again, and stroke is something you really don't think about in children, but you are seeing kids who've had strokes. Yes. So... Um, as a parent, I think this is one of the scariest things to encounter is when you have a completely normal child one minute and then the next moment they might have had an AVM rupture and that um, totally causes a neurologically devastating um, injury. And so treating these kids too, it's it's a slightly different way, a slightly different approach to treating the brain injury, but it is still an upper motor neuron injury. And so we see some of the same sequelae of um, spasticity and dystonia and um, impaired cognition and impaired mobilities and ADLs. So our, our acute inpatient rehab program is to help get them ready for that next phase of care, whether it's um, home health or outpatient therapy. But, and again, in clinic, it's, it's, keeping tabs on them every three, six, 12 months to make sure that they're progressing well and they're integrating into back into their community well and getting back to school without difficulty. And so I 
like to consider myself more as a resource for my families, especially after they discharge, so they can check in and um, if there are any concerns with, like, I'm not able to get my wheelchair or I'm not able to get this um, AFO that um, was recommended, then I try to help them troubleshoot that as well. So also kind of work as a care coordinator mm-hmm. <laughs> in clinic. Are the symptoms of childhood stroke the same as in adults? That how do you, or is there something different to look for? There... Symptoms are pretty similar. I would say that in pediatric patients, though, they can be quite profound and quite um, rapidly progressing. And so, um, and of course, anytime we are talking about a stroke, time is of the essence for management. So, mm-hmm. I love to see I love to see how parents are so in tune with their kids sometimes and they'll say, you know, they just started walking a little funny, so I decided to bring them in. And it's like, wow, you were spot on. Mm-hmm. Good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, good job bringing them when you did. But it could be as um, sudden into as the ER, right? yep. into mm-hmm. the ER. Mm-hmm. Or it could be something as sudden as they were just um, dancing and playing on the beach when they suddenly collapsed. And that was from an AVM rupture. Mm. Uh, we actually uh, had treated a kid at University Hospital who had bumped his head on a desk, but then he started complaining of a really bad headache. Parents brought him to the hospital, and he ended up having an AVM rupture. Mm. And so it's just like you, you don't know. But it's also hard because sometimes, you know, kids, kids say all kinds of things. So Right, yeah. I've got three kids. Like, you don't know if... It's hard for them to express the symptoms, and then in that case, if the family hadn't come into the ER, what would have happened, or is it hard to say? I think it's hard to say, uh, but I, I don't think that the outcome would have been as good as it was, because it, my understanding of this child is doing very well. Mm-hmm. In fact, he didn't even need to be in our inpatient rehab unit, so oh. that's a good thing. It's amazing. and. Jeannie, we met at a neurology conference, and um, it's such an honor to be here with you today. Do you want to talk a little bit more about um, neurology, the relationship there, what type of patients you see? Yes. So that was a really fun time, Mm -hmm. and I learned so much from the neurologists presenting there, too, at that conference. It was great. Yes. And I see myself, um, you know, PMNR and neurology are um, really, really great collaborative fields, um, and they, you know, I actually work really well with um, our pediatric neurologist, Dr. Brian Fox, and very brilliant, and yes. I, I really see the neurologists as um, they are the ones to um, make make the diagnoses and um, and from these diagnoses we can we can start peeling away the different layers of function that um, that keep a child from being able to return to their prior life which can be super complicated right 
very complicated because aside from spasticity or something like that, like some kind of upper motor neuron or some kind of hypertonia or movement disorder, there can also be new bowel and bladder incontinence from neurogenic bowel and bladder. And so, um, yes, so while the kids may um, also need urology to keep an eye on their bladder and, and things like that, I can talk to them from a functional standpoint of like, okay, let's try a timed voiding program. So I, I think there is a lot of overlap between PM&R and neurology in terms of, um, you know, we, we all want to get to the, the diagnosis and the etiology so that we can help, um, well, I guess the way I see it, neurology does more of the treatment, the diagnosis, and the treatment. And for um, for me in my role as a physiatrist, I do more of the supportive care and getting the the kids functional and back to back to the community and home. And for those of our listeners in the South Texas area, Dr. Fox works out of our clinic called Gateway. It's on Wurzbach and Fredericksburg here in the medical center. How do you know, you know, so Dr. Tess Barton, infectious disease, pediatric infectious disease specialist who's been on the show, when do you know to send to her clinic for infectious disease or to you, or is it kind of similar where for the diagnosing, you know, and beginning treatment, send to pediatric infectious disease, and then from there, if needed, go to you? Exactly. So, it's helpful for me to have a diagnosis to work with to be able to help restore the function. So again, going back to long COVID sequelae, if we're having symptoms of uh, shortness of breath or fatigue, sometimes keeping an, um, looking at their lungs or their heart would be one of the first things I would um try to sort out before uh, before trying to just treat some of the symptoms of fatigue. And so making sure there isn't some kind of reversible organic cause to whatever their, whatever their issues are. Sometimes it could even be checking thyroid function and uh, vitamin D levels. So different labs that could also be drawn prior to, um, prior to referring to PMNR for long COVID. And I think, I mean, that goes for children and adults. I think there, um, if we could have some more work up done, some of the legwork done before they come to see us, then we can help to address some of the symptoms. And Jeannie, you also treat patients with amputations from trauma or cancer. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So a lot of times these amputation surgeries are much more intricate than just having a limb um, operated on and then getting a prosthesis later on. There's There are so many steps in between um, from surgery to, re, uh, to getting that artificial limb. And so some of my uh, focus with treating post-amputation um, ampu- patients is keeping an eye on their pain, of course, because they can have surgical and um, phantom pain from their amputation. I focus on 
limb shaping so that they can actually have a good prosthetic fit, edema management, and um, making sure we're preventing contractures. All of these things with the goal of getting them up and ambulating or getting back to whatever activity they need to do. Because if you don't keep an eye on those things, then if contractures form, then you're going to have to think about, oh, what other treatments do we need to do? Do we need to operate? Do we need to do serial casting? Something else that might um, hinder the process, the progress towards getting that prosthesis. So, so that's what, um, that's what my focus is in post-amputation care. And when it comes to a child with um, an oncological disease, I work closely with the oncology team to, um, to make sure that their, um, their pain is adequately controlled, not just from the surgery, but also from their cancer and keeping an eye on their renal function and everything like that that can be impacted by chemo. And of course, too, there are kids with certain chemotherapy, um, who receive certain chemotherapy regimen, they have neuropathic pain as well from just the toxicity of the chemotherapy itself. So balancing that um, with trying to get a child to be functional as well, because we don't want them super sedated, since all of these medications are very sedating. So it's really about striking a balance, and it's not a one-size-fits-all type of a program. It's just listening to the child and their family and identifying what goals they have and seeing what um, barriers there are to reaching those goals. My focus is disability or um, any impediments to function. And so in my outpatient clinic, I do see um, other diagnoses with uh, that affect function like cerebral palsy. I also mentioned spina bifida. Um, I know Dr. Isabella Tereshevitz is really working hard and building a comprehensive spina bifida program. And it's been really exciting working with her and getting that um, going as well. So our goal is to, I mean, again, spina bifida, comprehensive care for them. There's also um, muscular dystrophies that also impair function. And while there are the amazing neurologists and cardiologists that help to keep an eye on the diseases and the treatments thereof, I like to help with, um, my focus would be on treating their function and um, would a certain type of orthotic support help to maintain good range of motion of a joint or, um, so a lot of non, surgical orthopedic uh, management as well. So anything to help them to sit better in their wheelchair or use their walker better, those are the things that I focus on. So it doesn't necessarily have to be just long COVID, doesn't have to be some kind of devastating brain injury or spinal cord injury, um, but really any of these childhood onset um, conditions that, um, that can affect the child's development and function really happy to help. My cousin had muscular dystrophy and he has since passed away, but I have, oh, I have a, a clear memory as a child being in his driveway in the state of Washington and we were playing basketball and he would 
hold the basketball and roll it to me, and then I would get it and then shoot the ball for him, and then I would toss it back to him. And so we still played. He still played basketball. Mm-hmm. And I think that that flows nicely to one of your favorite quotes by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Can you tell us that quote? If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving. I think it's so inspiring. Absolutely. The kids inspire me every day. Dr. Jeannie Harden, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thank you so much for having me. If you're a practitioner, click on the link in this podcast for free credit. Coming up next week, I'll talk to a doctor from Johns Hopkins University about AI and how this is going to help babies. Our website is pediatricsnowpodcast.com. I'm Holly Wayment, and you're listening to Pediatrics Now.